Amen. You may be seated, and at uh, this time as well, we're going to dismiss the children to Mrs. Maisie, and I believe uh, Mr. Freebel, if he's here somewhere. Okay, yeah, he must be down there. Awesome. Good morning, everybody. Welcome uh, to Renovation uh, as well. want to welcome you just like Jared did. Um, got a little feedback from last week's opening session uh, in the marriage uh, series. Basically, the feedback was, we take all of our feedback very seriously. The feedback was, we weren't very clear about our definition of marriage. That really, we need to look at that Again, we need some clarity. So before we get started in week two, I thought we'd uh, have our next video and really go to a relational expert so he can give us some added clarity so that there's no confusion about what marriage is. So let's maybe bring some clarity to the definition of marriage. Turn your attention to the screen. Well, I had a very interesting lunch with George Costanza today. Really? We were talking about our lives, uh-huh. and we both kind of realized we're kids. We're not men. So then you asked yourselves, isn't there something more to life? Yes, we did. <laughs> yeah, well, let me clue you in on something. There isn't. <laughs> there isn't. Absolutely not. I mean, what are you thinking about, Jerry? Marriage? Family? Well, they're prisons. (laughs) Man-made prisons. You're doing time. You get up in the morning, she's there. You go to sleep at night, she's there. It's like you got to ask permission to to use the bathroom. Is it all right if I use the bathroom? (laughs) Yeah, and you can forget about watching TV while you're eating. I can? Oh, yeah. You know what? Because it's dinner time. And you know what you do at dinner? What? You talk about your day. <laughs> How was your day today? Did you have a good day today or a bad day today? Well, what kind of day was it? Well, I don't know. How about you? How was your day? <laughs> Look, it's sad, Jerry. It's a sad state of affairs. I'm glad we had this talk. Oh, you have no idea. <laughs> hey. I couldn't resist. A man-made prison. Thank you, Cosmo Kramer. I think you've helped us see what marriage truly is. I think some of you guys, and maybe some of you girls, said amen for the first time in church when you thought about marriage. Uh, But I think... As funny as it is, I think we all come to the realization that, that uh, all, although that was hilarious, it's not really an indication of what marriage is, and it's not really, uh, really what the Lord has in mind. And so we agree that marriage is so much more than that. And uh, it's been suggested by uh, uh, some that really one of the most important things that we can do is 
take this sordid sitcom view of marriage and really speak to it and confront it and reveal uh, the truth. And that's our intention again here today. We continue our series, it's the second week, and we're still asking the question, what is marriage? We're going to look at that from a different passage of scripture that we looked at last week, one that is building upon that opening, those opening chapters in the book of Genesis. And I think what we begin to see is now we're transitioning into the question, how do we relate in marriage, right? That foundational question, what is it? And then it begins to slightly turn the corner and head in the direction of how do we now relate in marriage? And if you dig even a little deeper, you can even begin to ask the question, why? Why does marriage even exist at all, ultimately? So I want to invite you to turn to Ephesians 5. We're fast-forwarding in the scriptures. Ephesians 5, 22 uh, through 33. We're going to read this together. This will also be read uh, in some way, shape, or form next week. So this passage will be looked at next week as Tim comes to preach uh, as, as part of this particular section of Scripture. But for now, uh, we're going to take a look at uh, some, you know, something that kind of complements what he's going to talk about next week. So Ephesians chapter 5, 22 through 33, what is marriage and how does that begin to influence how we relate in marriage? Verse 22, wives... Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as, I'm sorry, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of God, and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Okay, I'm no artist, and I'm no art historian. I'm just going to be straight with you. Okay? So I'm going to ask you, we're going to have to quiz you, because I need to learn something this morning. Okay, from your vast knowledge of art and history, okay, 
you help me out. What are the three most beautiful or maybe famous painted portraits in art history? What are some that come to mind right away? Mona Lisa. Huh? Right away. Mona Lisa. Absolutely. Uh, some uh, would have said, maybe if you really know your art, which I don't, therefore you Google it, um, Rembrandt's self-portrait. You see that? Nope. Rembrandt's self-portrait. There he is. That's Rembrandt looking at Rembrandt and painting it. So another one that came up, and actually a top ten list, was one uh, of Pope Innocent uh, X, which was another famous painted portrait. Again, I'm no historian, but if I can just use that image to talk a little bit about the nature and the purpose of marriage this morning, uh, please humor me. You see, I believe that God is... Uh, quite the artist. That is, he's quite the painter. And he has, throughout all of history, been painting uh, a, 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 a portrait as well. And he's been painting this portrait throughout all of history with his faithfulness. He's been painting this portrait with his steadfast love. And he's been painting this portrait with his unmerited favor. His grace. That is, on the canvas of history, God sat down and he's been painting a picture of himself in the lives of people. And he's been painting that picture using faithfulness to a promise he made and steadfast love to a people that have rejected him and given grace to a people who have rebelled against him repeatedly. And he's done this through covenant relationship, right? We saw last week that marriage was a covenant, right? A union between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, and that God was there doing that, making two become one, right? But we see that as the scriptures go on, as sin enters the world, that he continues to relate to Adam and Eve by establishing a covenant with them. And then we see in Genesis chapter 12 that he continues his stroke of faithfulness and love and grace as he makes a promise to Abraham, right? That all nations in the world will be blessed through him. He makes a covenant with Abraham. And then he says, I'll do the same with your sons, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he reestablishes that relationship in the book of Exodus when he makes that covenant with Moses and the people of Israel, right? And he gives the law. These are the stipulations of the covenant. Here are the consequences if you're faithful. Here are the blessings if you're unfaithful. Here are the blessings if you're faithful. But understand this. I will remain, regardless of how you respond, I will remain faithful. I will be one of steadfast love. And I will extend grace to generation upon generation. He continues with David as he makes a promise to David that a ruler will come from your offspring that will rule and reign forever. 
and to his kingdom, there will be no end. He makes that promise. We know the life of David, how he makes a promise to a man that is a mess spiritually more often than not, that wreaks havoc on his nation that he governs, and his sons are crazy and nuts. But God continues to be faithful. He continues to pour out his steadfast love in the face of rebellion and rejection. He continues to extend grace to his people. And then we see in the prophets, the book of Ezekiel, that in the midst of a nation that continues to live in a cycle of sin, and that this old covenant is, is not effectual to change the human heart, that he says, a new covenant I will make with Israel. Right? It will not be like the old. A new covenant will be established. And we see as we look again at the Gospels that this covenant is, is brought through the person and the work of Jesus. The ultimate expression of steadfast love, of faithfulness, and of grace in the world. That God sent his self into the world, his very son into the world to build a church. To establish a relationship with a church. A people not just of nationalistic Israel, but anyone that would see who he was and embrace their need for him and to cry out for salvation from this sin that a new covenant would be established. And you see him praying in John 17 as he's talking to the Father, may they be one as we are one. That there's this desire in the heart of God to be made one with his people. And the way in which that happens is that he doesn't just come to his church, Jesus. He doesn't just live a perfect life for his church. He does not just pray for them, but he eventually does the very act that personifies and illustrates and embodies what love, faithfulness, and grace is. He dies for them. He gives himself to his church so that they might be one with him. You see, God is painting throughout all of history with his love and his grace and his faithfulness through covenant. He's establishing a relationship with his people. Christ has secured a relationship with his people in his death. And that is the new covenant in his blood. Amen. That's what we see. That God is painting a portrait on human history. This is who I am. And then we see Ephesians 5, 29 and 30. I'm sorry, 31 and 32. It says this. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. Quoting Genesis chapter 2. And then he says this. This mystery is profound. There's a mystery in that union. He's pointing back to Genesis 2. And he's saying listen. There's a mystery there. Let me tell you what it is. He says this. The mystery is profound. And I'm saying this. That it is referring to Christ in the church. That that original union is fulfilled and finds all of its fullness in a relationship between Christ and his people, the church. He says this, in Genesis 2, is that. 
relationship that Christ has with his people. And we see that marriage is so much more than a man-made prison. It's so much more than we would give it credit for. That marriage is a living portrait of the relationship that Christ has with his church. That's what marriage is. This mystery is profound. But what I'm saying is this. It refers to Christ and the church. The original marriage. All the marriages after that. Our marriages are made to be, intended to be, a living portrait where the steadfast love, the, uh, the faithfulness, and the grace of God are painted on the very portrait of our lives and in history. Marriage is so much more than we give it credit for. It puts on display a relationship between Christ and his people. It shows the world this is God and his people. That is profoundly significant. It's so much more than we give it credit for. I think so often we miss this. So often we miss this profound mystery, right? And it got me thinking about another painting, actually. A painting of, uh, uh, that Michelangelo gave. Many of you know Michelangelo, right? He's kind of famous, right? I think he owns a pizza shop downtown. Just kidding. There's only one pizza shop in Syracuse. We all know what it is. Nobody better say Pepino's. Michelangelo never did a portrait of himself. Can't find it. And yet in 2009, they were doing some research and some art historians were digging into some of his works, and they found something that, for all intents and purposes, became pretty definitive. That there was this one painting that uh, Michelangelo did uh, of, a, of an image of Christ on the cross. And you see there um, uh, this crowd of people all around. And this is one of Michelangelo's works. And it turns out that as they were reviewing all the people in the crowd, that uh, there's a guy wearing a, a, a towel kind of a hat in the upper left-hand corner. And uh, uh, that was uh, typical of uh, sculptors in the 1500s, 1600s. And so while it was not seen for centuries, it became very clear that Michelangelo put himself in the crowd with these people. You see, as you look at the original marriage, we may not see the profound mystery. We may not see Christ's relationship with his people portrayed in it. But now we see that Paul shows us here that this mystery is that. That after centuries, after generation upon generation, we see the fullness of what marriage really is. It's this portrait, this living portrait of a relationship that God has with his people. And so often people sit down with me and they share their struggles and they don't understand why. 
They're frustrated and they're angry and they're confused and they don't really know what to do. They don't know what the next step is. And so often, this becomes a corrective. So often, just simply understanding that it's not about me. Right? Keller talks a lot in his book about how people uh, tend to look at marriage as a way to be fulfilled in the deepest part of who we are. That is, it's just another add-on to the happy life of being all that we can be. And to, to actualize all the satisfaction that this world could offer. Some kind of self-help program to just be happier. Or at the very least, some people think that marriage is a way to, to really share life. That it, it's just about us. At least ultimately. It's about our love. It's about our future. It's about our eternity. You know, I said last week, it's about us forever. And we miss out on the more profound thing that marriage really is. It's not about you. It's not even about us. But it's about Jesus and the church. That that's what this relationship really is all about. It's about the glory of God being put on display as an eternal relationship is lived out, right? That what we really see here is that marriage is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Marriage preaches in a way that nothing else can or nothing else does. Marriage preaches. So if people want to know how, what is God like and how does he relate to people, They look at our marriages, church. If your children want to understand the love, the faithfulness, and the grace of God, yes, they need to go to the scriptures, right? But there's a living portrait as well that they can look at and say, yeah, that's what Christ is like. That's what the church is like. That's what our eternal relationship with God will be like. They see it in our marriages, Marriages preach the gospel. Marriage is a living portrait of the good news of Jesus Christ and his love and his faithfulness and his grace to people. Do you see that? Profoundly significant. And so in marriage, we paint a portrait. How we relate to one another is how that portrait is painted. And so we look that wives and husbands have particular roles and responsibilities. That's how the canvas is colored. That's how the portrait is painted. Right? As husband and wife, really we have two artists. We have two brushes. And we have three primary colors. And that's what I'm going to talk about for the rest of our time. Right? So every piece of art, every portrait needs an artist. Okay? And so we have two. We have husbands and wives. And each one of them begin to uh, paint this portrait uh, by knowing and embracing their roles. You have to know your role and embrace it. To really paint it. And matter of fact, let me, let me flip it on its head. If we don't understand and embrace our God-given role in marriage, we can't paint the portrait of the gospel. 
We can't do it. It all starts with knowing our roles and our uh, responsibilities. It says this, verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is its savior. You see, the role of the husband, as this portrait is painted, is to be the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. I look at husbands often and I say, let's be clear, you are not Jesus. And the wife, or the wife-to-be says, you better believe that. But you do represent Jesus. You do, in your role, represent Christ in relationship to his people. Husband, that's you. That's your role. You represent Christ in relationship. This is one of leadership. This is one of authority. Oh man, we don't like that word. That's what head is. That's what the word means. To have a God-given authority. To have God-given leadership. And, let's be clear, that means a God-given responsibility. Men, husbands, you have an incredible responsibility. Some of you are thinking, man, I, I got the authority. Let me, you have the authority. You have the responsibility. Steward that well. Steward that well. That is a heavy weight. This means also, and let's be clear, that, that headship is as Christ is the head of the church. This is not a domineering. This is not an abusive. This is not a I'm the boss kind of authority. This is not the authority that we see in the world that is so easily used for selfish gain, for, for controlling and for manipulation. Isn't that the kind of authority that we see in the world? This is the kind of authority that we see Christ exhibiting to his people. And what does Christ do with his authority? He uses it to give himself. He uses it to obey his father. He uses that authority to lay down his very life for his church, for his people. So you have no license to boss your wife around. You, have, you are not more valuable than they are. This does not mean that you are always right. You're not always right. This does not mean that you get to choose what movie you watch and where you go out to eat every single time, no matter how logical your decision is. Moser Chipotle, well, Chipotle... I don't care what day it is, Monday, to, it doesn't, Chipotle, oh, but the scare, come on, this is some weirdos in Washington, right? Chipotle. You could see some of the issues we have. This does mean, mean responsibility. So, and this leads you to love sacrificially, right? You're, you're giving yourself up. That's what Christ did. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives, unconditional, unwavering, faithful, steadfast, no matter what, love, 
Joy in the joy of the beloved, as Piper says. You find joy when she is full of joy. You are so excited when she's happy. This is awesome. When you lay down your own personal happiness and you think about her needs and you come alongside her to serve her and to sacrifice your immediate desires and needs for the moment for her joy. That's what Christ did. It's he laid down his life for his bride. That's what husbands are called to do. And understand this, that you are primarily there to lead her spiritually. That her spiritual well-being, that her relationship with God is your goal, is your heart. This is why you're there, to help her grow in deeper relationship with God. Husbands, you are responsible for the, for the spiritual and physical state and emotional state of your wife. If Jesus were to show up to your house and knock on the door and say, I want to take account for this family, he wants to talk to the husband. You're responsible. Some of you have abdicated that responsibility. Some of you are, are watching your wives love Jesus and read their Bibles while you get wrapped up into other things like hobbies and you allow her to lead the family and the children spiritually, and you've abdicated, you've gone passive. Husbands, this is your role. Lead them. Love them toward Christ. That's what this means. This means that you are concerned about her physical and spiritual needs. You're concerned about her to the extent that you're willing to listen before you speak. This means that you will be faithful to her alone. Consider her alone. That your eyes will not wander because your concern is hers alone. That your love is for her alone. And you lead her in that way. You love her in that way so that she finds her way to Christ. See, and we're not even getting there yet. That, that this Jesus gave himself to bring him to himself holy and beautiful and in splendor. You see, we lead and we love and we give ourselves, husbands, to our wives to present her to Jesus. I'll never forget when I had that light bulb moment where I realized that this wasn't always, that it wasn't about us. It wasn't about me and Doreen. It wasn't about that. That really I was put in her life by God to lead her to another man. That the way I loved her and the way I related to her throughout however long that was in our marriage was a preparation for the day in which she would be in the presence of her true man, Jesus. Husbands, have vision for your wives. It's not about her and you. It's about you leading her to Jesus. And then I think about that with my daughters. That my role in her life is to lead her to a husband that will lead her to Jesus. That's what we do, men. We give ourselves to our wives. We give ourselves sacrificially so that they might be given life and joy spiritually, physically, and emotionally. We serve them. That's what leadership does that is like Christ. It serves and it sacrifice. Sacrifice. Some of us need to repent because we recognize that we've been painting a very different picture 
in the way in which we relate. And the gospel is not being preached in our marriage. Some other story is being told. Text goes on, tells the wives to submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 24, now as the church submits in everything, I'm sorry, so as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The role of the wife is compared to the role of the church. Remember, it's what's being put on display, the gospel, Christ in the church. We need both people picking up their brushes, one in the hand of sacrifice, the other in the hand of submission, painting this picture. And we hear that word submission, and we all get uncomfortable, don't we? We all recognize that this word has been used to abuse, to hurt, to manipulate, and to control. It's been misunderstood and misapplied for a very long time. But just because it's been abused, misunderstood, and misapplied for quite some time, that doesn't mean we cross it out with a sharpie. That doesn't mean we redefine it to make it feel better in our particular social social context. It means we take a look at it for what it is. We seek something greater beyond it, the display of the gospel. This means, wives, you're respond to his God-given leadership. He takes the initiative. You respond with a heart of submission. You know, I was thinking of all these ways that I could tell the women about submission, and I thought, you know what? Why don't we let a really credible woman teach on submission? So I'm going to quote Nancy uh, de Moss on a number of these things, and maybe you want to Google her or take a look at some of her stuff on uh, headship and submission because she speaks from a woman's perspective. She's been very instrumental in, in even my wife's understanding and a lot of the women here about really what's at stake. And so I want to just say this. She says, our responsibility as women, true women of God, is to respond to that leadership in humility, graciously following and submitting to God-ordained authority. Submission means this, to arrange under. It's a, it's a military term, to fall into line, right? That's what it means. And so there's this idea that you are willingly and voluntarily uh, submitting yourself as the church submits to Christ to your husband. He, she says this, our responsibility, oh, I said that already. I must have had that twice. Submission is a joyful, spirit-filled, surrendered disposition and inclination to follow authority and to yield to the leadership of those that God has placed over us. Okay? She says, submission does not mean this. Men are superior to women or that men are more capable or more intelligent or more spiritual than women. That is simply not the case. Man, my wife's way smarter than I am. Amen? Some of you guys know that. It does not mean that women don't have opinions or that they don't express those opinions or give input to situations. 
Submission does not mean that the men in authority are always right. A lot of mistakes have been made by men. <laughs> does not mean they're always right. And husbands. Submission does not mean blind obedience. It does not mean that we sin in order to submit. Submission is not a license for those in authority to be abusive or domineering or disrespectful of those under authority. She goes on to talk about, and I think correctly so, that submission really is just simply Christian. That men and women, we all live under authority, really under the authority of the Lord. We all live in the fear and the submission to the Lord as Christians. We're all people called to recognize authority and submit to it. Right? If you look at the previous verse, verse 21, Christianity is marked by mutual submission. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Previous before that, it talks about being filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit is going to lead us all to be submissive, to willingly, voluntarily uh, place ourselves under the authority that God has placed over us as Christians. And so women, wives, are called to submit to their own husband in submission to their Lord. So you see the roles, right? Complementary roles. That, that the husband portrays and re represents Christ in relationship to his church. And the church represents I'm sorry, the wife represents the church in relationship to its Lord. And as they do this together, they're painting a picture of the gospel. They can't do that if they're not brushing with sacrifice and submission. That picture will not be painted. If one of the parties says, I'm out, that picture is not painted. If one of the parties decides that they're going to fight for their own rights and their own privileges, they're going to seek their own happiness at the expense of the other person. If the husband refuses to lead and the wife refuses to yield and to willingly and voluntarily respond to leadership with submission, then that portrait is not being painted, that the gospel is not being preached. And so at the end of the day, most of our discomfort with this is just that the fact that it confronts the, the biggest problem that we have as people. We're selfish. That's why it's distasteful. That's why it's uncomfortable. Because we have to fight for ourselves. We have our own goals and dreams and desires in ways in which we want to live our lives. And we're only interested in relationships if they help us get there. You're here so I can get there. Tim Keller talks about that. He says the main barrier to the development of a servant heart in marriage is what we touched on in the, touched on in the first chapter, the radical self-centeredness of the human heart. But you see, no matter if we're the, the husband or the wife, the man or the woman, no matter if we're sacrificing or submitting, I think Andrew Lincoln says it well. He says both roles demand self-renunciation. It doesn't matter if you're the husband or the wife. You give yourself to the other. 
You lay yourself down and you serve and submit and sacrifice for the other person. It's not about you. It's about the gospel of Jesus and portraying that with every stroke, every conversation, every disposition, every action, every decision, every purchase, every time allotment. All that we do, you look at one, or, one another and say, what do you need? How can I help? How can we together portray the relationship between Jesus and the church? That gives it such profound significance, doesn't it? And when we submit and we sacrifice, guess what we're doing? We're throwing the primary colors of the nature and the way in which God relates to people. We're throwing love and faithfulness and grace on human history. And that's what people long for. They long for commitment. They long for promise. They want hope. They want someone to love them. They want undeserved favor when they screw up and when they sin. They want to be forgiven. They want mercy. And so when we live that way, that's what we're doing. We're painting the gospel, steadfast love, faithfulness, grace on the lives of other people. And God is on display for the world to see. That's what marriages are supposed to do. Paint a picture of the relationship that Christ has with the church. Please have a bigger vision. It's so much more than we give it credit for. It's not a man-made prison. It's a God-made union. The husband and wife paint a portrait. Steadfast love. Faithfulness. Grace. The very things that we say we long for. It's, but it's all through giving of yourself, not gain, get, getting yourself or requiring other people to serve your needs. It's about giving yourself away. Keller says if two spouses each day say this, I'm going to treat my own self-centeredness as the main problem in marriage. You have the prospect of a truly great marriage. The main problem is me at the center of the world. But if you say, that's my main problem, that's my real issue. It's not about her and his issues and him and his issues. and It's about me. I'm the problem. My own self-centeredness is the main problem in my marriage. If two people can humbly confess that, they have the prospect of a truly great marriage. Because that kind of marriage is one that paints covenant grace. God's love relationship with his people. Christ's love relationship with his church on the canvas of history for everybody to see. And I know I'm running out of time. But I think it's important that we all humbly realize that we're really bad painters. Humbly confess that while we 
dip it into colors. Those colors are diluted. They're not as vibrant as they should be. Our brushes are damaged. Right? And the image of God is distorted. Some of us are dealing with intense struggles. The struggle to be the man and the husband God's called us to be. The struggle to be the wife and the woman that God has called us to be. And that's created an immense amount of conflict and pain and hurt in relationship. If that's where you are today, if you're struggling and failing miserably to display the gospel, ha, let's go to the gospel. Christ is enough. Confess your inadequacy. Humbly admit that at the end of the day, while you're not giving it or receiving those things from your spouse, there's still an infinite well from which to drink. There's still hope for those who struggle. And even in the midst of the struggle, we all find ourselves running to the gospel, running to the steadfast love, faithfulness, and grace of God. So do that. This is what God wants to display. If he wants to display this, he's going to give you the grace and the mercy and the love that is necessary for you to be changed, to be healed. Don't give up on the journey. God is there. He wants to give you his love. It's so important because, listen, if, you, if this story, if this thing has not been painted on your marriage, this, the, the gospel has not been painted on your marriage and on your life, you won't be able to paint it on your marriage and in your life. It has to be painted for you, on you. God has to do it. You have to receive this kind of love before you can give it. And for some of us, we've gone even farther than that. Some of us have not just struggled. We've begun to live in brokenness. Some of us have been affected by, by divorce and separation. Raise your hand if you or someone in your family has been affected by divorce or separation. Yeah. For those of you who have for those of you who have struggled to that point and walked in that kind of pain there is great Love, faithfulness, and grace in the heart and in the mind and in the truth of God for you. As difficult and hurtful as that was, Christ is still here for you. He wants you to drink from His love. There is healing in that. You may be living in disappointment and defeat, and frustration about how you haven't done this or you haven't done that. But I think what this does is it all the more brings us back to 
the story that God is writing in our lives. He has done it. He is enough. He is our love. He is our hope. He is our mercy and our grace. So rest in Him. Run to the gospel. You will be received by Him. And understand this. The pain we feel and the struggle we engage in will not be this way forever. All of this is temporary. And the way in which we live today paints a picture of the way in which eternity will be. Christ and the church. That's what marriage is all about. It's so much more than we give it credit for. It's a living portrait of the gospel. It's a living portrait of Christ's relationship to his church. I pray today that this corrects and gives hope and provides healing. If you need any help or want to talk about or want to clarify anything, we are available to you. But I pray that Renovation Church would be known as a community of people that have marriages and relationships that preach the gospel. That God's grace, His love, and His faithfulness is painted all over Onondaga County by us. Amen? Amen. Our Father, we have scratched the surface, to say the least, about the truths of your word. We seek you for hope and for healing. We ask that you give husbands the strength to lead and to love and to sacrifice. We pray that you give wives the desire and the ability to willingly submit and give themselves to their husbands. And I pray that these marriages would paint a portrait of the gospel for all to see. Truthfully, I pray that everyone in this room would see God and who He is and how He loves and how He is committed and how He remains faithful to the end and begins to say, this radically changes everything about my life. And that all of us would love the gospel enough that we would live the gospel for all to see. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.